following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Fundamentals of Gnostic art. So, in this tradition of Gnosticism, we study what's known as four pillars or four foundations to spirituality, which can help us to understand many of the religious traditions of which we may have been uh, acclimated. It's important to note, again, refer that the word gnosis is Greek and refers to self-knowledge. This type of self-knowledge is not intellectual, nor is it found in any book or a lecture. This type of knowledge pertains to one's cognizance of spiritual truth, one's experience of the divine. And so... We emphasize and teach through many lectures and books the foundations of spiritual practice. And in this uh, course, Fundamentals of Gnosticism, we're explaining how the science of self-knowledge has been taught in many religions and traditions, whether in Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, etc., and in the last lecture, we emphasized that gnosis is a science, coming from the Greek word scientia, meaning knowledge. But again, it is not intellectual scholasticism, something to be argued or to be debated. It instead pertains to how we perceive God, how we know God directly. And in the last lecture, we emphasized that... Uh, this is a practical teaching that's been manifested in, uh, again, different religions. And today we're going to talk about the pillar of uh, art within Gnosis. So there are four pillars, science, art, mysticism or religion, and philosophy. So the study of our own inner divine nature, our inner God, relates to these four pillars 
And so we're going to explain how gnosis, self-knowledge, knowledge of God within us, is an art. We explain how it's in a science, but we're going to explain how this methodology has been present in many great paintings, sculpture, music, classical compositions, sculpture or pyramids, architecture, etc. Since these are <coughs> physical representations of divine truths. And so we explain that the purpose of Gnosis is to know God, to know our inner being from experience. And we state to be made into the image of God. Many people think that since people have this physical representation of uh, having this physical body, that the image of God is physical, that there is some anthropomorphic figure in the clouds dictating the fate of this poor humanity. But that is not the image of God that we seek to develop. For the truth is, this type, this image is uh, psychological in nature, spiritual in nature. It has to do with our own self-perception. And so in the Bible, the Gnostic book of Genesis states that uh, God, or Jehovah Elohim, in Hebrew, yod Elohim, breathed into the nostrils of Adam, Adam, the breath of life, and he became a living soul. These are spiritual principles and truths we need to actualize and have nothing to do with simply the mere physicality. For the breath of life is precisely the energy and force of God, since we say God is an energy, not a person. And uh, we find in this image, this, this principle, this archetype represented. This is uh, from the Sistine Chapel by the Master Michelangelo who is a Gnostic, teach, uh, Gnostic master. And in this painting, he emphasizes and expresses the beauty of the creation of the soul. Many people think that they have soul. But if we observe ourselves and analyze our psyche, typically what we find are many discursive elements. Frustration, pride, anger, resentment, lust, vanity. Defects of a psychological type. But here, if we are sincere and analyze ourselves and examine our psychological states, we will find that if when we close our eyes to meditate, we see darkness. It means that we don't see the, our inner divinity within us. Who is represented in this image as an anthropomorphic figure, but really uh, God is an energy. And so painters and great masters in order to teach spiritual principles, would use physical forms to teach this path. So this is precisely the creation of uh, a soul made into the image of God. God is, uh, you could say, is like wind, breath, spirit. For as Jesus taught, this, uh, you must be born again of water and spirit. And that the spirit goeth where it listeth, and none know where it goes or where it turns to except those of spirit. So this pertains to how God is a, an energy which we can find in our breath, our breathing, uh, is really an abstract force. Not physical breath, but energy. And so God, we find, 
is creating this human being. And this is really our goal in these studies. We want, to be ma- we want to be true human beings. And to know what this means, we have to analyze the term. Hume in Sanskrit is wind, spirit. Man is, comes from the Sanskrit manas, which means mind. So a human is a mind, whether from a male body or a female body, makes no difference, is crafted into the psychological and spiritual image of divinity, which a real human being, we could say, having a body like ours, does not have anger, pride, vanity, lust, but instead embodies the highest and most beautiful ideals that humanity has encountered, such as through figures like Jesus of Nazareth, Plato, Buddha, Krishna, Prophet Muhammad, different religious teachers who taught the doctrine of peace and how to become spiritual. And so this is an art form which has been represented in art. And you'll see that by the diversity of expression that really this science is universal. It is not particular to one tradition. And Gnosis, we say, people, people typically think Gnostic Christianity. But it pertains to all traditions, all religions, all paths. So it's good to examine what the word art really means. It's from the Greek arti, which means just. To be just. To have justice. Or as we say in Hebrew, that sadikim, the righteous ones. To be righteous before the eyes of God. Which means that we work psychologically on our own imperfections so that we can become perfect. Whereas Jesus of Nazareth taught, be perfect as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. The word artios means complete and suitable. And so we see that the creation of Adam, which represents all of humanity, which can be made into the image of God, really is uh, the work of becoming complete and suitable before divinity. And this is something we need to really verify and examine psychologically to see whether or not we are suitable for the incarnation of God. Because God cannot mix with anger, resentment, wrath, and different defects that we carry inside. We have to remove that. If we want to be made like Adam into the image of Jehovah, Elohim. So we have the, I believe it's a German word, art sign, to prepare. So notice as an art is the preparation of the human being to be made into the image of God, which is how, what we teach in many books and lectures, the many practices that we provide in this tradition. Artists from Latin are artus to, as joint. And we find that this is the joining of the divine with the human or the divine with the terrestrial. This is the real meaning of religion from the Latin religare, which means to reunite. It's the same meaning as uh, yoga in Sanskrit. Yug is the root word to unite or join. So we want to join with our divinity, but if we want to mix with the divine while carrying our impurities... Then, we can, then that connection is impossible. Only when the soul is pure can that union be made. We find the Armani, uh, Armenian uh, word... Welcome. Yes. No problem. So we find the Armenian root, uh, root 
uh, word arnam, which means to make. It's from the early 13th century. And uh, art also is a skill as a result of learning or practice. And likewise, when we want to know God, we have to learn the skills necessary to know our being, to know divinity. It's a result of learning and practice. So uh, as we find in sculpture or paintings or art, one needs certain skills in order to produce certain results. One needs to study intellectually in order to develop practically. The same thing with spirituality, genuine knowledge of God. Because it's a skill that we develop for, the, for uh, learning, such as through books, and by applying these principles in our own life. From the French, uh, artem, work of art, practical skill, a business, a craft. Which is what people typically think of when they think of art. But here we're looking a little bit more esoterically, a little more deeply, the hidden meanings behind these terms. So we're going to look at some, uh, throughout this lecture, many different works of art that portray and exemplify these principles. Here we find uh, the crucifixion of the Christ Jesus. And we find uh, his burial beneath, his crucifixion in the center, followed by John the Baptist pointing towards the Lord and emphasizing uh, precisely what is this path of becoming a human being, a human man, a spirit man. It's pointing towards death. Precisely through the death of impurity is how one can unite in purity. For as Paul of Tarsus taught, it is... Uh, by throwing away, I believe, throwing away incorrupt, uh, corruption, one can inherit incorruption. As taught by uh, Paul of Tarsus. And so uh, art, as in this painting, we find many symbols and messages which were transmitted in secret by initiates. And what I mean by initiate is a person who's been acculturated and studied and learned from experience the divine truths contained within religion. Not the outward formalities of scripture and practice, but really the internal experience of what God is. And so they would, these painters would dedicate their entire lives, and musicians and artists, to explaining the path of self-realization to humanity through art. And sadly, people always take from these art forms and do not really appreciate the genuine depth that these works of art pertain or demonstrate. As uh, Helena Petrovna Bolvatsky emphasizes in The Secret Doctrine, she's the founder of the Theosophical Society, a great female yogi master and uh, proponent of Gnosticism. She stated in her book, her famous Secret Doctrine, the ancients knew these powers so well that while concealing their true nature under various allegories for the benefit or to the detriment of the uneducated rabble, They never departed from the multiple object in view while inverting them. They contrived to throw a thick veil over the nucleus of truth concealed by the symbol, but they ever tried to preserve the latter as a record for future generations, sufficiently transparent to allow their wise men to discern the truth behind the fabulous form of the glyph or the allegory. And so painting and art and music is symbolic, representative of... uh, uh, experiences we can have in meditation 
or uh, in the dream state specifically. These are the, they are accused of superstition and credulity, those ancient sages. And this by those very nations which learned in all the modern arts and sciences, cultured and wise in their generation, except to this day as their one living and infinite God, uh, the anthropomorphic Jehovah of the Jews. So, these, so people who explain that and say that they're very religious, who, follow, who believe in an anthropomorphic God in the clouds, really are ignorant about the, we say the esotericism, the, the experience represented behind these principles. So just as Jesus of Nazareth had to face his passion, his crucifixion, and his resurrection, this is a representation of what we need to do inside. So Jesus of Nazareth is a great master, taught how each of us has, carries our own inner divinity known as Christ, from the Greek Christos, or Christos, which means anointed one. It also refers to the Greek god of fire, Christos. And we find in these letters, atop the martyr of Calvary, Inri, which in Latin is, translates as uh, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Iuriarum, which we can break down in many ways. We could say Ignis Natura Renovatur Integra, which means fire renews nature incessantly. So Christ is not a physical person, but is a fire, an, an energy, a force that we can incarnate if we know how, if we are prepared if we know the method, we know the art form. And likewise, the Christ through Jesus taught us a very beautiful path filled with difficulty, but one which can produce the peace and genuine development of the soul. We also find that the Latin inscription above could also mean in neces renascor integra, integer. In death I am reborn intact and pure. So, so through the death of a psychological impurity, ego defects, we can attain the resurrection of Christ within our soul, which is represented in this painting. Likewise, we have an image of, uh, by the master Botticelli, Botticelli with the, the death of Christ. So we find the three Marys of Christianity, followed by the apostles, and specifically Peter, who was holding the keys to heaven. People literally think that these apostles were simply people in the past to, who documented a historical event. Ignoring that these initiates, these people who were instructed into the inner mysteries of divinity, came to represent for us archetypes that we need to develop inside. So the, just as there is an apostle Peter outside, he came to represent our own inner Peter, or the Hebrew, or the um, the Latin patar, which means stone, kephas, and uh, I believe Aramaic. So you like the philosopher's stone? Yes. So what alchemists called in medieval traditions as the stone really refers to Peter. And he represents in us, uh, to synthesize, he really represents the, the work of uh, sexual, spiritual, psychological energy within our interior. Because... Uh, the word Peter, patar, is, uh, means stone and really is the foundation of our spiritual work. Specifically, we find, the word, we find uh, unfortunately, we find slang words such as for a phallus is a, a Peter, which comes from, refers to the sexual nature of what this apostle represents. As we find demonstrated by the keys he carries in his hand. 
So often in these studies we talk about the mysteries of matrimony and how a man and woman united sexually can use those energies for God, which is the path of Tantra in the East. And so uh, he, ha- he has a gold key and a silver key in his hand. Gold represents the solar energy, the projective masculine force, a man. And silver represents the lunar receptive or uh, um, the opposite to uh, the solar force is a woman. So together, the man and woman together can come to really know God by working with the most holy energy that they carry within, which is uh, the stone, what we call, what some people call the Holy Spirit. We say is the sexual energy, an energy which can be used for divinity. And so we find the three Marys representative of three aspects of our inner divinity we need to develop. We have a Mary Magdalene, we have Mary, Mother of Jesus, and as we see on the left, we have Mary of Bethany, who is a, really a, a repentant soul that uh, is any person who genuinely enters into this, this path of self-realization, who really yearns for a spiritual change. So the other apostles, they are in disarray and they're confounded. But notice how all the apostles, as represented in this image, have their heads on a slant or diagonal, meaning that in this process of self-realization, there's disbalance. Really, in the path of self-knowledge, we seek to acquire balance, to equilibrate those forces inside of us. And when there's silence and balance, we can, we can really develop our full divine potential. And notice that Peter is the only one who is level. He's the foundation. He's the rock of the church, of uh, the, the holy Christian, universal, Gnostic, Catholic church. Catholic really means universal. And it's not the Roman sect which uh, deviated from the Gnostic Church founded by Peter. But this image represents for us uh, a beautiful teaching. How This work with Peter as a representation of how we work with energy inside of us is our foundation. It's where we begin. Is that like the cornerstone of Freemasonry? Yes, and the Freemasons often talk about the, the cubic stone that needs to be perfected, which is Peter. Our energies need to be perfected in our, our mind, our heart, and our body. They represent um, three, three superior aspects of our divinity. So just as we have a divine father, we have a divine mother. And uh, we talk about often five aspects of uh, our divine mother, but three of them are very important for us. Divine mother space, which is the abstract <coughs> deity or universal cosmic mother, represented by all of uh, the substance of space known as Akash or force. And she is really uh, the origin of all worlds, stars, planets, suns, gods. Likewise, we have uh, Divine Mother Nature, which is, the, which is our inner divin- Divine Mother, the feminine principle of God, who creates our physical body. So our body is a type of Mother Nature, which contains many forces we can use by following the path of Peter to find balance and equilibrium. And then likewise, we find uh, our inner Divine Mother Kundalini, uh, our particular individual divine mother. And so each of us has a divine father. Likewise, we all have a divine mother inside. Which one of the three do, do we uh, speak to when we want to go somewhere in, in, in a dream state? You could speak to any of the three, really. But usually when we supplicate, we supplicate to our divine inner individual divine mother, represented in Kabbalah as Bina. So 
Kabbalah is again uh, the, the study of the Hebrew letters, which are also principles and teachings within the individual letters of the language, as we find in this glyph. So likewise, through different paintings and art, we find many symbols representing this path of self-knowledge. So we find Mike, uh, Leonardo da Vinci's, uh, I think it's the Petruvian Man, next to the symbol of the Gnostic pentagram. So this pentagram, the pentagram, people typically think of Wiccans or, or uh, witchcraft. But this is a, this is a misconception based on, uh, based on uh, basically propaganda, we could say. Uh, unfortunately, this symbol has been denigrated by many traditions and really represents for us, as we see parallel to each other, the human being made into the image of God. So the star represents a man whose spiritual reasoning is governing his heart and his body, and is ascending towards God. Usually when people think of the pentagram, they think of the inverted pentagram, which is the opposite of the human being, basically the head facing towards the earth, the legs facing up. That represents a demon, a being whose reasoning is subservient to sexual passion. Is represented by the sexual organs, which when inverted, sex governs the head, and that produces as we can see in our world today, the uh, greatest suffering for humanity. And so in this image, we're not going to explain every meaning or symbol in the pentagram. We could give a whole lecture on, on just this image. But one thing I'd like you to notice is that we have the Hebrew letters Adam and then yod The right arm has yod which is Jehovah. Likewise, the word Adam is the human being or man made into the image of God. So this star is the man made spiritually, psychologically, embodying all the divine principles and, and virtues of Christ, represented by Yod Chava, which is the Hebrew name for Christ. You had the letter Shin, the, uh, the, it looks like a three-pronged letter, in between Yod He and then Vav He. You have Yeshua, which is Jesus, and that word means Savior. So if the force that can save us spiritually and psychologically, if we know how to work with it. And so the star is Adam, like the image of Adam being created by Jehovah. It's the same meaning as a a man is being approached by his inner God. That is what it means to be made into the star. And so this image, uh, I I mentioned this briefly because in our next image, we often find Jesus, uh, such as in the Ghent altarpiece by Jen van Eyck, or Eck, is a, I think he's a Dutch painter. We find uh, this common greeting of Christ where he extends his middle finger, index finger, and thumb out and two fingers down. This is representative of the pentagram that we just saw, meaning Christ greets us, he says, uh, inferential peace, peace unto you, by showing the pentagram. So the symbol of peace really represents um, the, the three, the arms extending outward and the head towards heaven. And so this image represents uh, the human being uh, that has been created by God. So the symbol that we're taught would be the opposite. Yes. So people would call hippies when they do two fingers. They're showing that the three fingers are going down and the legs are going up. So we often talk about how hippies, this fascination with drugs and promiscuity and sexuality is really a a very degenerated, uh, abusive of, uh, it's the opposite of uh, the path of Christ, which is, uh, a type of pure love. And on the left, we have uh, the Divine Mother, Mary, 
the center we have the, the victorious resurrected Christ. On the right we have John the Baptist. What's interesting, if we look at images like this, we find there's a lot of meaning. And my intention is not to exhaust, to exhaust all the meanings in this, but to just to emphasize that art really portrays many, many initiates portrayed through art. Beautiful teachings, such as we find in the crown of the Virgin Mary, Mary or Miriam, you could see ten stars. And if, it's hard to see from a distance, but if you look closely, you see there's, there's ten stars above her crown. And basically, uh, the number ten is significant in the studies of Hebrew Kabbalah, which, as we mentioned in our last lecture, is uh, one, of the, the sci- one of the trees of uh, the Garden of Eden. Uh, the tree of life, which is the Kabbalah, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is the science of alchemy. Tree of life is represented as a map of the soul in different degrees and developments. We find that, uh, I don't have an image present, but there are, this tree of life is represented by ten spheres, ten sephiroth, or modalities of energy and consciousness, as well as matter representing the heights of divinity within us as well as our physicality at its lowest. So the fact that the Divine Mother has ten stars in her crown represents that she is fully developed in her, in her child, which is us, all of the aspects and principles of divinity within. So you could say this is like the Christmas tree as a symbol. The Christmas tree represents, again, that man, that tree of life, which is illuminated with stars, with light, with virtues, powers and, and understanding. So likewise, this image of the crown of stars represents how she has within herself those ten sephiroth fully developed, which is our ten aspects of our own psychology that we need to develop inside. And so what's important is that we find she's looking at a book. She's studying. And just is emphasizing that we need to study and to really know the teachings well in order to interpret what art is telling us. Do you believe that... Um the truth within these artists' work helps them succeed? Or is it that you know, they're just trying to do something for the greater good, of, you know, for, the, for the viewer to gain something out of it? Both, I would say. A lot of the artists, in order to, t- in order to maintain, their, in order to teach their doctrine, they had to earn money. That was the practicality, the practical realities of living in this world. And so we'll see as we study some of Beethoven and uh, uh, a little bit more about Michelangelo, how you know they needed to earn money to live. But they used their living, their vocation, in order to express the spiritual path. And so again, John has a book representing how he's studying deeply into these teachings. And Christ has, uh, you can see he has three crowns on his head, representing the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Or in Kabbalah, on the very top of the Tree of Life, we find Keter Chokmah Bina, which says crown, Keter, Chokmah, wisdom, or Christ, Bina, understanding, the Holy Spirit. So within Christ is all three principles of the higher aspect of divinity represented in this image. So not, not only does painting represent many teachings, but music, especially, especially classical music. For uh, divinity decided many centuries ago in Europe to spread this knowledge through many great musical compositions, uh, specifically through opera, as well as uh, classical symphonies. And so, really, music is a language. We know it's mathematical. And mathematics is the science of Kabbalah, science of numerology, measurement. 
And uh, we say in this tradition that God is a geometrist. God creates through numbers. Numbers is uh, infinite and holy, mathematical. The universe is created through many laws which are governed by Christ, the energy of God. And likewise, music represents mathematically and through notation spiritual, emotional, and psychological principles that we can actualize within ourselves. And so uh, some examples of great masters who taught their music is uh, Freemasons like Puccini, uh, Beethoven, Mozart, um, Tchaikovsky. They were Freemasons? Yes. Uh, Tchaikovsky I'm not so sure about, but he basically those, those men, those masters were uh, usually, very little is known about their uh, uh, membership to these groups because they were very secretive. Instead, instead of... Uh, giving lectures or providing books. This knowledge used to be underground due to some dangers that were present if they were to openly unveil these teachings. So a lot of these composers would um, teach other initiates by making symphonies. They would create a symphony and then have it played. Other masters would come and they would, they would intuitively know the meaning, being very awakened spiritually. They would understand the meaning of the symphonies and would get teachings and communicate that way. Since they had a lot of time, they didn't have time to, and they weren't allowed to openly divulge this type of knowledge. At that time, they would be sacrilegious. But in this time, in the information age, it's a very different, uh, very different laws in motion. So uh, we have the following quote from the founder of this tradition, Samael and Vior, from his book *Revolution of the Dialectic*, and he speaks about how music is a beautiful teaching that pertains to every aspect of our psychology. Our constitution. In music, it is well known that certain notes can produce happiness in the thinking center or intellectual center. Other notes can produce sadness in the sensitive emotional center, and other notes can produce religiosity in the motor center. So, last lecture, we discussed how the human being has uh, three aspects or centers within our body and our psyche how we function intellectually through thought, how we process uh, emotion or sentiment and our motor center, which is how we acquire movement, physicality. Some of this is what scourge you. Yes, and so Gnosis as a fourth-way teaching relates to uh, what Master Gurdjieff taught, and we, uh, we emphasize a lot of things that he taught, since uh, he was a very, um, uh, very humorous and uh, very strong master. So, uh, like Gurdjieff taught, we find the following teachings in this book. Indeed, the old hierophants never ignored, or the, the masters of the temples of mysteries, the Freemasons, etc., never ignored that integral knowledge can only be acquired through the three cerebrums. Uh, we talk about three brains. People think we only have one brain. But a brain in these studies, the term denominates uh, how we process information in ex- psychological experience. So we process information intellectually through thought, Concept, any concept, argument, debate, idea, etc. Thesis, antithesis. We also have uh, the emotional brain where we process psychic perception, intuition, uh, sentiment, love, compassion, etc. And likewise, we have movement, which in- which includes our 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 sense, how we experience sensation, as well as uh, our sexual impulses, as well as, as well as instinct. And uh, likewise, music was really intended for all three aspects of our psyche. It nourishes our mind, our heart, and our body. When it's uh, 
coming from divinity. So a single cerebrum cannot give complete information. So many people think usually in life they develop one brain over the extent of the others. When really in schools, instead of just studying intellectually so much every day, uh, ancient schools of mysteries used to provide theater and dance, sculpture, music, in order to work with different aspects of our psychology and our center centers so that uh, we can understand deeper, so that they can understand deeper messages. But someone who would to listen to a certain song, it's not so much that they're lear- they know it intellectually, that there's something there. It's, is it more consciously? Yes. Like they're just being more conscious, uh, you know, through meditation? Yes. So consciousness, we, so- we talk about three brains, and you can think of it like a car. Our body has three aspects. We have a mind, a heart, and a body. How we use those three brains depends on our, our consciousness, which is our soul, which can either follow the will of God or can go, get carried away by the whims of the intellect the, or the heart or the body. And so in order to really understand superior messages in music, we need to really have a lot of perception and meditation, practical skill, which is the definition of the word art, and uh, experience internally, such as in meditation or in the dream yoga state. So, uh, as, he, as the Master Samael, the um, founder of this tradition, states, the sacred dance and the cosmic drama, wisely combined with music, serve to transmit tremendous archaic teachings of a cosmogenetic, psychobiological, psychochemical, metaphysical type, etc., to the neophytes, those who are studying this teaching. So, like I said, opera is really the best, is one of my most favorite art forms because it's an amalgamation of theater, music, and, uh, well, drama and theater, basically, as well as uh, uh, contains many symbolic teachings, which is something we can go very extensively in depth. What does the meaning of cosmogenetic? Cosmogenetic means uh, relating to how the cosmos, the divine, relates to our genes. The, or genetic, really, we find the word genesis, creation. So cosmogenetic pertains to how we create the image of God within us, uh, how we bring the, the spiritual down to the physical, which is really what artists like Beethoven did. And you'll see it through some quotes that he provided that this is really what he was getting at in his symphonies. So as uh, Samuel Envior states in The Perfect Matrimony, uh, he explains that art has always been dual in nature. It can express the most divine in the human being, but also can express the most diabolic. And I'm sure we can think of many examples of both. The initiate loves great classical music and feels repugnance for the infernal music of vulgar people. Afro-Cuban music awakens the lowest animal instincts of the human being. The initiate loves the music of the great composers. This is not to say that all music from Africa is degenerated or negative. In fact, there's many tribal teachings, Native American, Tibetan, uh, African, which are very positive. But typically in these times, when we think of Afro-Cuban music, we think of salsa and many types of... uh, uh, dance and music, which really, if we're examining ourselves, provokes a lot of subjective elements, psychologically speaking. If we're observant, if we really pay attention to how our three brains respond, how our mind, what we think, what we feel, and how we act. And so when we awaken psychologically, spiritually, we in turn can comprehend the great messages of the the superior worlds. We have this image of the Master Jesus or the Christ who is ascended to heaven and uh, 
we put this image there to represent how divinity comes down and um, can express through any master who is fully prepared, who is uh, developing the art of the initiate within himself or herself. Samael and Vior states in the book Igneous Rose, We must comprehend the significance of music, happiness, and optimism. One remains in ecstasy while listening to the magic flute of Mozart, which reminds us of an Egyptian initiation. So uh, Mozart, when he wrote the magic flute, he, uh, in, the, in the dream state, he received a uh, blessing or celebration in the temple of Egypt, in the astral plane, which is what people call the world of dreams. So he was awake in that state, and due to his development as a practitioner, he uh, was accepted into that temple. And so, uh, those, so that music represents... In the magic fluid, if you're familiar, there's in the very in the overture, there's a there's a basically three notes that are played in successive order, representing the the three pyramids. So we find uh, the Trinity of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but also the pyramids of Giza, where he was initiated in the internal worlds, the dream worlds. Is that usually where the initiation is happening? Yes. So our physical life, if we're working, we can. You know, uh, basically, we we work here physically, but celebrations like that are, happen when the physical body is asleep and when we're awake as a soul outside of the body. One feels amazed when listening to the nine symphonies of Beethoven, or the ineffable melodies of Chopin or Liszt. The ineffable music of the great classics comes from the exquisite regions of Nirvana, where only happiness that is beyond love reigns. All the children, the great children of the fire, the angels or Elohim, distill the perfume of happiness and the exquisite fragrance of music and joy. So all that music, the beautiful symphonies of Beethoven, um, particularly the ninth, the choral symphony, Ode to Joy, really represents the happiness of God that is uh, flowing within all of nature. And so the great angels, if we uh, learn to travel in the internal planes, uh, astral, achieve what's known as astral projection. We can meet these angels uh, as well as Beethoven, many masters, and speak to them face to face. And in this uh, type of perception, we can speak to the gods or the angels, the Buddhas, the jinns, whatever names we want to give to those beings. And we can really see that they embody the highest virtues represented by the beauty of uh, the great symphonies and the mu- music of Liszt, Chopin, etc. And so art is intimately related, we say in these studies, to the, uh, what we know as the plant, the plant or the soul of the plant known as saffron. So we, in these studies, I've been explaining or we've been explaining how there are initiates or masters who have attained development. And so uh, we find that, or they are, we could say in other words, they are apostles. So without exaggerating in any way, we can say that Liszt, Chopin, Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, Mozart, they were apostles of art, prophets of art. They, they taught how to unite with the soul through their music. And so in these studies, we often talk about the work with uh, elemental souls of nature, such as through elemental magic, specifically through plants, working with the souls of plants. And we have many methods that we explain in books like Igneous Rose, in which we can really work with uh, elemental souls of nature in order to uh, help protect ourselves and inspire us to work spiritually. Like a cat. 
Well, cat would be from the animal kingdom, but you know, cats can help us too. They're very evolved souls. But here I'm talking more about uh, elemental plant magic, where we work with uh, the souls of flowers or trees, uh, plants, in order to uh, produce certain works in the physical world. So the saffron is the plant of the apostolate. And we see in this image uh, the Buddha, who is tempted by the three daughters of Mara, representing also in Christianity as Judas, Pilate, Caiaphas, the three traitors, who are trying to tempt Buddha from attaining his enlightenment which represents uh, our inner God within us, or the, the, the initiate who is really acquiring equanimity of mind through meditation. So he's doing the Vitarka Mudra, which is when he have his, uh, his finger with his thumb and the three f- fingers up. This really represents uh, the transmission of a teaching. And so Buddha is transmitting the teaching of self-knowledge because the color saffron, yellow, pertains to knowledge, gnosis, objective knowledge. So if we have an internal experience with the color yellow, really pertains to self-knowledge, understanding oneself in a dream, basically. So the saffron is the plant of the apostle. The elemental population of the saffron is found to be intimately related with the apostolate. And this image, we chose this image because the Buddha is conquering his own mind, represented by these three temptresses. He conquers his own mind in order to provide a teaching. He's providing, with the Vitarka Mudra, he's expressing the doctrine of Buddha, the inner Buddha and meditation. Likewise, uh, an apostle of art, like Beethoven, Mozart, Wagner, Chopin, they cultivated their mind through studying music and practicing their art in order to express a divine teaching. So like Buddha giving the self-knowledge of uh, the inner mind. Likewise, the different Masters of music gave teachings through their art. So when Jesus died on the cross, the three days that it took for him to resurrect are the equivalent to these three? Not necessarily. Uh, the three days for the resurrection pertain to uh, uh, a work related to... We could say uh, there is a relationship between the, the three uh, traitors and the three days or three... Uh, you could say three days before the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, three re- is a very symbolic number, which we'll discuss more in depth, but three relates to creation. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Positive force, negative force, neutral force. Well, right there that the Buddha is overcoming, is it his worst fears? Yes. So the three daughters are not really uh, people who lived in the past, but represent legion. Because... Uh, we can, we can characterize our own inner demons, our own defects, as three, because we have three brains. Uh, Pilate is the demon of the mind, who always washes his hand and justifies himself of sin. Caiaphas is the demon of the heart, who rejects the Lord, who does his own will, such as through anger and violence, etc. Judas is the demon of desire, who sells the Lord for 30 coins, the sexual passion, basically, through lust. And so these three, but yet, we, even though we have three brains, we say there are three traitors, represented by how we wrongly use our, our mind, our heart, and our body. Likewise, each defect, there's many, which is represented by Lazarus and, and the, or the, the man who was possessed by many demons that Jesus uh, exercised in the Bible. They, so he asked Jesus, told Jesus, and Jesus asked him, Who are you? And the man said, We are a legion, for we are many. Because there are a multitude of defects that we have inside.
but uh, we could say that we can synthesize those defects as three, because we have three brains. And this is what Buddha overcame, what Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, Mozart overcame in themselves in order to give their, their teaching very potent wisdom through their music. So the mind of the authentic apostle is crucified. This is a very powerful statement. Because is it not true that many of these masters who gave their music were heavily criticized? And uh, many people have created a lot of books and writings and even propaganda against certain musicians, things that are not true. And being criticized for their work, these apostles suffered. So they had to crucify their mind and not to overcome their reactions to to a public that does not really understand the esoteric message behind the music, but which they give for love of humanity. The mind of the authentic apostle is intimately related with the elemental department of the saffron. So if we want to work with uh, developing happiness and optimism, we can work with the elemental magic of the saffron plant, uh, which is intimately related with uh, uh, the apostles of art, basically. The mind of the arhat, or the meditator, who's conquered his mind, is intimately related with this elemental department of the saffron. The apostle is a martyr. Everyone in the world benefits from the works of the apostles. Everyone in the world reads their books, or, we say, listen to their music. Everyone in the world pays the apostle with the coin of ingratitude, because according to popular concept, the apostle has not the right to know. So, basically, this is referring to how People, humanity typically it looks at masters like Beethoven or Tchaikovsky, Mozart, and really gives them, exchanges their divine works for, with ingratitude. Because these people say, well, how can anyone know God? These, these people didn't, Beethoven, excuse me, Mozart, they didn't know God, so how, how would they know? And out of ignorance, people reject the deeper message behind these works of art. And so, the apostles suffer for that. It's, it's a tremendous suffering to give such a teaching like the Ninth Symphony and humanity applauds and, and venerates this work of art, but they don't really understand the meaning. Or people criticize it, not knowing the message, precisely because people think that no one can possibly know God, which is agnosticism. You put A in front of Gnosticism, it means to not know, to be ignorant. And it doesn't mean not reading a book. It means to not have experience of God, which is really all of us to a degree, one, one degree or less. But through conquering our mind like Buddha, we can emanate that light, which is Christ, the light of God, our, our inner energies, our forces. However, all the great works of the world are due to the apostles. And I say this without, and I say without exception. The saffron is intimately related with the great apostles of art, Beethoven, Mozart, Berlioz, Wagner, Bach, etc. The planet related to saffron is Venus, the star of love. So in relation to medieval alchemy, Venus relates to uh, arts, the influences of uh, music and culture, literature, etc. Here's Beethoven, who in his own words really demonstrates what this teaching is about and what his music is about. He said into a letter to Archduke Rudolf in August 1823, There is no loftier mission than to approach the divinity nearer than other men and to disseminate the divine rays among mankind. Because he was experiencing things in many uh, meditations he had, as well as out of his body, in order to transmit 
the teachings of his God. Now, people are astounded that before even composing the Ninth Symphony, his greatest, one of his greatest works, he was physically deaf. He couldn't hear a thing. And yet, his expression and his notation in the music is perfect. It's because, and people, and people debate and wonder, well, how is this possible? That a deaf man could compose something so tremendous like this. This is unfathomable. And the explanation is that physically he was deaf, but when he would go out of his body in the astral plane, or even in nirvana in different dimensions, represented by the tree of life, he was hearing that music from his, his inner divinity and was remembering, memorizing everything, retaining everything, and then returning to his body when he was de- where he was deaf and trying to notate everything that he experienced. He was very awakened. And I, ver- I mean, I verify, I get testimony that his music really teaches very elevated principles. And we can know these things directly if we investigate. He also states, Music is the one incorporeal entrance into the higher world of knowledge, which comprehends mankind, but which mankind cannot comprehend. Meaning, we cannot comprehend with the intellect, which is what people do with his music. They look at it intellectually and they're amazed by its complexity. But it's like learning... Hebrew and not understanding the Bible. It's a sad fact, but it's a reality. He states in a quote, uh, he was quoted by Bettina von Arnen, a letter to Goethe, who he was, I believe he had correspondences with. Goethe is another great master of literature whom we venerate. He sa- Beethoven says, When I open my eyes, I must sigh, for what I see is contrary to my religion. And I must despise the world which does not know that music is a higher revelation than all wisdom and philosophy. He, and this is my favorite, he who understands my music can never know unhappiness again. Because you listen to the ninth, and really the ninth is about self-realization. You, you unite with your God, and then you can say, Freude, schöner Gatter, fangen, Tochter, Auxilisium. And it's the angels are really expressing that that joy that another soul has entered into nirvana, into bliss. And it's uh, really a profound teaching. So if you understand that from experience, you won't be so dejected and will really work harder to know God. So even Wagner, who is tremendously slandered in these times as an anti-Semite, as a misogynist, was a great master. And so... If we understand that all the apostles of art have been uh, denigrated by the critics, by people who don't really understand religion or science or mysticism and art, uh, we understand that his teachings are very profound. And so his operas teach a lot of Kabbalah. He break teachings. So it's incongruous to say that he was an anti-Semite when his operas represent the entire tree of life and tree of knowledge of Genesis. But in synthesis, he states the following and the purpose of art. When religion becomes artificial, art has a duty to rescue it. Art can show that the symbols which religions would have us believe literally true are actually figurative. Art can idealize these symbols and so reveal the profound truths they contain. I believe in God, Mozart, and Beethoven, and likewise their disciples and apostles. I believe in the Holy Spirit and the truth of the one indivisible art. I believe that this art proceeds from God and lives within the hearts of all illumined men, initiates. I believe that he who once has bathed in the sublime delights of this high art is consecrated to her forever and can never deny her. 
I believe that through art, all men are saved. Because art teaches us the path. And we really, when we study art, it inspires us to really work on ourselves psychologically, spiritually. And to have that experience of what his opera Parsifal teaches, such as we explain in the book Parsifal Unveiled, or as the Master Samael explains in that book, uh, really it's, it's mind-boggling. And it, it inspires us to really change and make effort to overcome our own suffering, as well as the suffering of others. So we have an image of Parsifal with uh, the temptress Kundri, which is another representation of how Buddha was facing uh, his inner devil, the uh, temptress of, temptresses of Mara, which represented in this opera by Kundri. It's the same drama as in Parsifal. The knight who seeks to retrieve the Holy Grail, or the knight who seeks to retrieve the lance of Longibus, which pierced the side of the Lord. So we find that just as there is divinity in art, there's also a lot of uh, uh, diabolic representations within art too. This is easy to find if we look at our common modern media as well as much of the art forms that are presented in these times, such as through uh, things like death metal, uh, gangster rap, uh, violent forms of music, which are very provocative, usually of a lustful nature as well. And so we find that even theater as well as... uh, Places that once trans- theaters that once transmitted the divine teachings have been um, overpopulated and overcome by people who really don't understand the, these messages. So, just as you know, uh, a comp- uh, people who play in a symphony, may, they may not know the meaning of the music. They can at least express that teaching. Same thing with works like Sh- by Shakespeare, uh, which are esoteric plays, esoteric dramas. But a lot of times, these uh, the theater and many other forms of art and expressions of art have been infiltrated and uh, degenerated by, by um, lewd interpretations, things like that. So Samuel and Vior is very clear in the revolution of the dialectic. He states, The tenebrous ones have stolen the theater and the stage. They have miserably profaned it. They have totally prostituted it. This may seem harsh, but the thing, but the thing to realize is that if we look at theater, we see that a lot of their representations are very as I said, provocative, lustful, um, sexually charged, and usually devoid of any inherent esoteric divine principles. So we were talking a little bit about how divinity is expressed through art, but now we're explaining how really art is also a representation, can also be an expression of negativity. So the Sabbath, the day of the theater, the day of the mysteries, was very popular in the ancient temples. Marvelous cosmic dramas were then pre- uh, presented. Dramas served to transmit valuable teachings to the initiates, different ways to experience the being or divinity, and the manifestations of the being were transmitted to the initiate by means of drama. So Shakespeare retains a lot of this teaching too, such as Hamlet or uh, Titus Andronicus or Macbeth. Really, they, these characters represent principles that we can, we need to study and understand in ourselves. Among the dramas, the most ancient one is that of the cosmic Christ. The initiates knew very well that each of us must become the Christ of such a drama if we indeed aspire to the kingdom of the Superman. So the Superman is a term denominated by Nietzsche, who also knew this science as well. And uh, a Superman is a man who's a human being fully integrated with Christ, fully developed being, like uh, the King Solomon, the solar king. 
from the Bible. The cosmic dramas are based on the law of seven. Certain intelligent deviations of such a law were always utilized in order to transmit transcendental teaching to the neophyte. So we talk about the law of seven, which relates to Kabbalah. So you may hear that how the ancients uh, studied seven planets, and many people have this assumption that, well, the ancients must be stupid because there's more than seven planets. That's not the case. They actually knew of all the planets in the solar system, even while our modern astronomers don't. And the explanation is because they awaken internally and were able to investigate things about the solar system. But the law of seven is a law of organization. So we find the scale, the seven notes in our musical scale. And so likewise, seven is represented by the organization of our psyche, namely with our physical, energetic, emotional, mental, volative, conscious, and spiritual principles. And this relates to Kabbalah, which we'll explain more in other lectures. But a lot of art and drama explain this mystery of the law of seven. Plus, if you add the law of three, the law of uh, creation, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you have ten, which is the ten sephirah of the tree of life in Kabbalah. So here we see a sculpture of the Sphinx, which is an Egyptian work of art, represents a great mystery that we need to solve. So we're familiar that we've heard, I'm sure we all have all heard of the mystery of the Sphinx. And Oedipus Rex had to solve the mystery of the Sphinx in order to save um, his city. In addition to this, it is suitable here to mention sculpture. The latter was grandiose in bygone times. The allegorical beings chiseled on hard rock revealed to us that the ancient masters never ignored the law of seven. So sculpture, like the pyramids, the great works of uh, buildings of of antiquity, show us um, principles that we need to develop. So many uh, Egyptologists or archaeologists laugh at the Egyptians thinking that they worshipped idols, that they worshipped statues. And this is wrong, because these sculptures represent are symbols. They're not literal. To say that the American flag, literally, if we look at the flag, we say, "Oh, there must have been." There's fifty, literally fifty stars in the United States, and there's thirteen red stripes or white stripes, and that that's literally there. That's that'd be absurd. The Egyptians didn't think that way. They they represented cosmic principles in their sculpture. Let us remember the Sphinx of Giza in Egypt. The Sphinx depicts for us the four elements of nature and the four basic conditions of the Superman. So we have the paws of a lion, the face of a man, the uh, hooves of a bull, and the wings of an eagle. Traditionally is the is a representation. So the bull represents earth, our physicality. So the el- we have the elements in our body that we need to conquer inside. Likewise, we have uh, the face of the man representing water referring to our sexual forces, our, our energetic principles, our vitality, etc. We have uh, the wings of the eagle related to air, the mind, because the, the mind is of an aerial nature, breath. And then likewise we have uh, the paws of the lion, which represent fire, emotion, emotional processes, because we feel fire in the heart when we're angry or with love, etc., so in order to become an angel, we need to conquer those elements, which is what the riddle of the Sphinx tells us. If we want to become a man made into the image of God or a woman made into the image of God, we need to conquer these elements inside of us. Whereas Jesus taught, you should worship your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your will, meaning your bot with your, your willpower, and all your strength, physicality. So four elements represented there.
So to emphasize how these teachers like Michelangelo and artists really taught a hidden teaching, I would like to emphasize some quotes specifically by Michelangelo. This is the Sistine Madonna. No, the, it's the Pieta, excuse me, by Michelangelo, where the death of Christ being held by the Virgin Mary after his uh, passion. Here's some quotes that I'm going to explain a little bit what we can look at in, at a deeper level. These are sayings by Michelangelo. Every block of stone has a statue inside it, and it is the task of the sculptor to discover it. Just as we say that um, in order to create a beautiful sculpture, like we need to chisel, see the image in our mind and then chisel it into the stone, which is the literal meaning that Michelangelo taught. On a deeper level, we have to understand that like that stone of Peter, our, our psyche is like a stone that's impure and rough and that we need to chisel in order to produce that image of God inside. So patar, Peter, the stone, is our energies that we need to purify, chisel away by bearing in mind the image of our Creator so that we can create that sculpture, which is the perfected human being, a human being that is a work of art, divine art. I saw the angel in the marble and carved until I set him free. So we all have an angel inside our stone, we can say, symbolically. And we need to chisel away so that we can work patiently with a lot of love in order to produce this uh, angel inside. The best artist has the thought alone which is contained within the marble shell. The sculptor's hand can only break the shell to free the figure slumbering in the stone. So slum- figures, so that, again, these figures are slumbering, sleeping in the stone. And we say in this teaching that we're asleep. Like the myth of Psyche and Cupid, Psyche, our soul, is, a, is not awake to her full potential, and that Cupid has to awaken her. Represents how only Christ, Cupid, can awaken us, and to, in order to chisel that stone and produce the awakened, perfected image to become fully illuminated, awakened, a Buddha. This is uh, relating to the, the Sanskrit term. The marble not yet carved can hold the form of every thought the greatest artist has. My soul can find no staircase to heaven unless it be through earth's loveliness. Another beautiful teaching. People, people want to think that heaven is some abstract thing out in the clouds. But heaven, we reach heaven by working here physically in our body, by meditating, praying, etc. It also refers to earth's loveliness, which is a matrimony. Really, to enjoy one's earth, one's body, is to be married. And that is really when earth's loveliness is, is shown. And it is in a matrimony where the power of God can really be realized in depth. Which is what, we, is what uh, Samael and Vior taught in the perfect matrimony. I live in sin. To kill myself, I live. No longer my life, my own, but sins. My good is given to me by heaven, my evil by myself, by my free will, of which I am deprived. So, this is a very honest in, uh, examination of himself. He was saying that you know, I have a lot of sin inside me, but I want to be purified. And uh, to kill myself, I live, meaning to kill one's defects, which is the passion of Christ. Trifles make perfection, and perfections is no trifle. So if we meditate a little bit at a time and really work little by little to gain perfection, we will do it. Perfection is no trifle. Death and love are the two wings that bear the good man to heaven. It is necessary to keep one's compass in one's eyes and not in the hand, 
For the hands execute, but the eye judges. Meaning every action we do, we need to be observant of our mind. We need to really let our being, our God, express through us and not be identified with uh, physicality so much. Lord, grant that I may always desire more than I can accomplish. To always want to know more of divinity. Or as uh, the Muslims teach, or in the Quran, it states, Allah, or God, has not been known as He deserves to be known. Because in knowing God, there's always levels. Another sculpture, we find the Pyramid of Kukulkan, the feathered serpent of uh, the Maya. So the Mayan civilization bore a great teaching of, uh, in their architecture and taught many divine principles. So the Pyramid of Chichen Itza has four sides containing 365 steps, depicting the solar year. There's 52 panels for each year in the Mayan century, as well as each week in the solar year. 18 terraces for the 18 months in the religious year, designed by astronomers, astrologers, mathematicians. Um, the Maya and Toltec worship the uh, Kukukan, or in excuse me, the Aztec language is the Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent, or uh, as or like uh, it's, it's the same representation as the serpent that Moses raised on the staff in, um, for the Israelites to heal them, the bronze serpent. It's a representation of what Hindus call kundalini, which we can work with in a matrimony. And so the sculpture in the Maya depicted all this. Very beautiful, profound teaching. And we find that uh, uh, a snake of light, you see in this image, there's a snake of light represented in seven degrees up to the top of the pyramid, which only occurs during the vernal and autumnal equinoxes when light, night and day are equal. So the fact that they planned this with such precision to show a serpent of light rising up to the temple is representing many beautiful things for us that you know, if we work with that energy called Kundalini, we can ascend into our inner temple to receive initiation. Likewise, sacred dances like the, in the Middle East, in the Muslim tradition, uh, Sufis, teach us a lot. So uh, we had the following teaching by, uh, given by Samael and Vior in Revolution of the Dialectic. Sacred dances were authentic, informative books which were deliberately transmitting certain transcendental cosmic teachings. The whirling dervishes do not ignore the mutually equilibrated seven temptations of living organisms. So again, the law of seven present. We could say there are seven main defects that we have to face, the seven deadly sins. Uh, lust, pride, greed, gluttony, laziness, um, anger, lust, etc. There's uh, seven, seven deadly sins. The ancient dancers knew the seven independent parts of the body and knew very well the seven different lines of, what the seven different lines of movement are. The sacred dancers knew very well that each of the seven lines of movement possesses seven points of dynamic concentration. So these Sufi dancers would uh, concentrate and pray very deeply and they would focus on the movement of their bodies on the seven points of concentration, which we call the seven chakras uh, in uh, Hinduism. The dancers of Babylon, or basically, just to step back a moment, uh, went by doing these whirling dervishes, they would activate the chakras positively so that they can perceive things spiritually by movement and prayer, focusing on their seven centers in order to awaken them. The dancers of Babylon, Greece, and Egypt did not ignore that all this crystallized in the whirling atom and on the gigantic planet that dances around its center of cosmic gravitation. If we could invent a machine that would imitate with exactness all the movements of the seven planets of our solar system, 
around the sun. We would then discover with amazement the secret of the whirling dervishes. Indeed, the whirling dervishes perfectly imitate all the movements of the planets around the sun. So as a practice, it's a work with energy, doing uh, movement, dance, with prayer and recitation. And so these dances represent for us how the cosmos functions. So likewise, we find that, as mentioned in, by this Sufi text, Al-Risala, means principles, uh, translates as principles of Sufism by a, a Muslim Sufi master by the name of Al-Kushari. He explains that really music and poetry is divine. can express, uh, like through Shakespeare or other great works of art, many... Uh, uh, intimate experiences of the heart. It states in this text, Know that listening to poetry with beautiful melodies and delightful intonation, when the one who listens does not believe it to be forbidden, does not hear anything that is blamable according to the divine command, is not driven by the reins of his lust, and does not gather with others for the sake of lusts, is wholly permissible. So a lot of the Sufis, were, were Muslims were arguing, you know, what is, whether music is... Uh, is acceptable. And this, emphasize, this argument emphasizes that there was always a conflict between whether art can be ex- expressed the divine in man or the people would perform these dances out of lust for other women or men uh, within the congregation, which is a common problem back then, but even more so now. There is no denying that poetry was recited before the messenger of, messenger of God or Prophet Muhammad and that he listened to it and did not censor those who recited it. So if hearing it without beautiful melody is licit, how should the rule be altered by hearing with, with melody? This is the obvious side of the matter. What comes next is that the one who listens should find his wish to perform acts of devotion increased. So to really know if music or an art is really objective or not, is, is spiritual, we have to really examine ourselves. Are we, do we feel more devoted and concentrated? Or, is our, or do we feel anger or lust, or, or certain negative psychological elements inside when we encounter this type of art. He should remember the degrees that God Most High has prepared for, for his, prepared for His servants who fear Him. This should lead Him to guard against sins and immediately convey to His heart the purity of feeling and the impression required by the religion and preferred in the divine law. So music should inspire us to really love God more deeply and know God more deeply and to study as it's according to the divine law. The, the translation really is Sharia, which is not the... Here we're not talking about the law in the Middle East, the Muslim countries, which is a deviation from the spiritual meaning of Sharia, which is, we could say in, in Hebrew, Torah, or Dharma in Sanskrit. The law, the instruction we get through books and teachings. I heard Abu Ali al-Dakak say, the spiritual concert is forbidden to ordinary people because of the continued maintenance of their egos. So a lot of these concerts were forbidden for people who never knew anything about esotericism because they would always approach it with lust or filthiness. It is permissible with, for renunciates or practitioners because of their pursuit of inner struggle, meaning they're struggling with their own defects to become more pure in mind and heart so that God can incarnate. It is recommended, music and art, poetry, for our companions for the sake of the life of their hearts. So like the symphonies of Beethoven, the, it's really for companions. So what does it mean to be a companion of God? Is to experience God directly in uh, meditation or out of the body. 
So I like to emphasize uh, modern art, which is a deviation from the ancient esoteric principles we were discussing. We find that this time of materialism and we could say a bankruptcy of morals demonstrates itself through the type of art that people create nowadays. Where uh, in, a, in comparison with ancient times, we, we experience a rapid acceleration of violence, prostitution, drugs, alcoholism, mental illness, disease, etc. And so it reflects in our art. Uh, people whose minds who are um, focused on the diabolic and not the divine. And this is literally the Vena de Milo made of excrement. You have statues made of garbage. You have an image by Andy Warhol with Campbell's soup cans, really with nothing deeper than that. It's just a can. So the message behind it is there is really nothing behind it. It's empty. And the meaning of uh, like an, a can or an empty shell in Hebrew is klipa, klipa, which is where we get the word klipot, which means hell. It's a, em, the emptiness of spirituality, which is represented in our art. So as some island viewer states in the revolution of the dialectic, when the first symptoms of atheism, skepticism, and materialism began to appear in Babylon, the, degener- the, de- the generation of the five senses accelerated in a frightening manner. It is perfectly demonstrated that we are what we think, This is what Buddha taught 2,500 years ago. Therefore, if we think as materialists, we degenerate and fossilize ourselves. Karl Marx committed an unforgivable crime. He took away the spiritual values of humanity. Marxism has unleashed religious persecution. Marxism has precipitated humanity to its total degeneration. We find this in countries that adopted Marxism, communism, in which people's human rights were taken away from them and they couldn't have any belief in spirituality. And we see that uh, humanity without religion is barbaric. Because even without beliefs to how to live a good life, really is chaos, chaotic. And this shows in the different arts that's being produced. Materialistic Marxist ideas have infiltrated everywhere, in schools and in the home, in the temple and in the office, etc. The artists of each new generation have become true apologists of dialectical materialism. Every breath of spirituality has disappeared in ultra-modern art. Modern artists no longer know anything about the Law of Seven. They no longer know anything about the cosmic dramas. They no longer know anything about the sacred dances of the ancient mysteries. I'd like to show you, because not all art that is of a diabolic nature necessarily is ugly aesthetically. Uh, this is a, some painting by Salvador Dali, who is a very famous painter, and a very good one by his own right. The only thing is that his imagery is uh, while pertaining, while possessing tremendous technical skill and artistry, really is, uh, conveys a lot of the subconscious nature that he demonstrated. And this is evident by his own life, his quotes, his sayings, as well as his actions. Here's some quotes of his to contrast Michelangelo. Have no fear of perfection, you'll never reach it. To say that one will never reach... Uh, Perfection with divinity is really diabolic. Surrealism is destructive, but it destroys only what it considers to be shackles limiting our vision. The difference between false memories and true ones is the same as for jewels. It's always the false ones that look the most real, the most brilliant. So this is explaining that even though 
really it's knowing that there is a, a, a spiritual divine path. It's he's saying it's better to follow one's own subconscious diabolic nature, saying that it's the deceptive nature which is better. So he's really showing the opposite in his artwork, and is even demonstrated. He even said that you know he recommended to other artists to masturbate into their paintings to use their sexual bodily fluids in their art to paint and we say that masturbation is really contrary to the teachings we provide here because uh, masturbation if you take the latin word is manus stuprare manus is hand stuprare means defilement or stupare means to become stupid so we lose our intelligence if we masturbate because that energy which can be used for god is lost but Del- salvador dali really was addicted to that. He said, I don't do drugs, I am drugs. And we emphasize that, you know, drugs are, are, are only can awaken infernal diabolic perceptions like LSD, marijuana, etc., which is what many artists take in their body and mind in order to what they have what they say are spiritual experiences, but really are inverted. That we don't teach any dependence on drugs in this teaching. Because to know God, we seek to know God without filters, without any substance, but directly from ourselves. There's only one difference between a madman and a me. The madman thinks he is sane. I know I am mad. So he knew that what he was doing is diabolic in, in the kind of art he was expressing. Take me, I am the drug. Take me, I am hallucinogenic. Liking money is like I like it is nothing less than mysticism. Money is a glory. So he was very materialistic and... Um, was expressing, such as art like this, his own subconscious perception, which is, we could say, you know, just because we could say that a person who has perception doesn't necessarily have it objectively. This is the meaning of the word clairvoyance. Do you think uh, somebody's art, like Salvador Dali, can cause some sort of unknown hypnotism to the person who's viewing it? I would say, yeah. I mean, I, when I look at his art, I mean, I've been to, uh, I've seen some of his paintings in different museums, and, you know, it's, it's a, it is a very hypnotic and fascinating thing. We say that hypnosis is the opposite of gnosis. Hypnosis is to put your soul to sleep. Gnosis is about awakening your soul to know God. And so we have this dual nature. We have the consciousness which can awaken to divinity, which can awaken from sleep. And then we have our own diabolic subconscious nature. And Dali is saying it's better to follow your, your passions than follow your uh, divinity. And he knew this, so he was, he was really... Emphasizing the opposite. And his art is, yeah, art communicates energetically, psychologically. So we don't recommend, you know, necessarily indulging in those kind of art forms. So we find this is a a painting by Miro. Again, very technically, very well done. Masterful. But there's no uh, esoteric message behind it. Nothing, no divine principle expressed through it. So we find... uh, the following quote from Samael and Vior in Revolution of the Dialectic. It is already proven by observation and experience that the absence of spiritual values produces degeneration. The paintings of this day and age, as well as the musics, the sculptures, etc., are nothing but the products of degeneration. Meaning we look at art and we find that um, people use art to express violence, hatred, pornography, uh, sickness, disease of the mind, etc., the initiates of ancient times, the sacred female dancers, the true artists of ancient great times, no longer appear on the stage. Now only sick automatons 
degenerated singers, rebels without a cause, etc., appear on the stage. And you look at television. Uh, for instance, I I try to exercise at a gym, and they always play music videos of modern music playing now, and it's very filthy. Women dancing in very provocative ways and in lustful ways. It's always a challenge going there, but um, we find that uh, you know. Art in these times does not reflect God at all. It's very easy to analyze. You look at a couple hundred years ago, beautiful artistic paintings representing religious principles, but now completely deviated. We have gibberish, and I'm sorry to say that to Moreau. It's very well done, It's just, but that's what the mind is like inside. Different egos, you could say. Defects. Ultra-modern theaters are the antithesis of the sacred theaters of the great mysteries of Egypt, Greece, India, etc. The art of this day and age is tenebrous. It is the antithesis of light. Modern artists are tenebrous as well. Surrealistic and Marxist paintings, ultra-modern sculpture, Afro-Cuban music, and the modern female dancers are the outcome of human degeneration. The young men and women of the new generations receive by means of their three cerebrums, their three brains, data which is sufficient to convert them into swindlers, thieves, assassins, bandits, homosexuals, prostitutes, etc., so we find that if we look at art today, people are learning how to become, you know, like with video games as well, learning to become more violent, more angry, more lustful, more proud. And so art in this times reflects the consciousness of our humanity, which is really of a degenerating type. It's absent of the, really, really could say kindness, compassion, love or understanding, which is all from divinity. We find that a lot of art really is just the expression of what's negative and evil in a person. Instead, we want to cultivate art that shows us our own divine potential. So this is another good painting. It's by Edward Munch, which actually very well captures the modern mentality, the scream. And so to clarify this use of this image, I'll quote again, Some Island Vior. After the Second World War, existentialist philosophy and art were born. When we have seen the existentialist actors go on stage, we've arrived at the conclusion that they are truly maniacal and perversely sick people. And so we find that this image of a human being screaming in horror at the modern mentality really demonstrates the type of downturn that occurred in the 18th and 19th centuries. And even now onward on to the 21st century. Since the 1960s. How do you spell the last name of the guy? Munch is a M-U-N... No, it's not Munch. Oh, Samael Onvior. A-U-N and then uh, W-E-O-R, which is Hebrew. It's a Hebrew name. Uh, We pronounce it Samael Onvior. And um, Onvior means uh, strength and light in Hebrew. And uh, the name Samael is is his spiritual name. All of us have our own spiritual name from our inner divinity, which we need to discover inside. But the name of this author of this tradition is, is Samael Onvior, which is spelled A-U-N and then W-E-O-R in English. If Marxism continues to be disseminated, then the human being will end up totally be losing his five senses, which are in the process of degeneration. And so, uh, as we emphasize, uh, art can expresses the consciousness of a person, the level of development or non-development in a person. And if we look at art, we find that um, they, uh, ancient music and theater, dance, really conveyed in their depth a profound wisdom that we need to actualize in ourselves if we want to know God.
but also art in these times has, has veered away from its genuine purpose. We're presented by existentialist art, which again, existentialist philosophy pertains to the belief that there is no God and that one has to make meaning from meaninglessness. So it's a, basically a philosophy founded on hopelessness. This is the myth of Sisyphus, such as taught by existentialist philosophers like Albert Camus, uh, Sartre, and um, Kierkegaard, as others. Any questions? Is what you talk about is a derivative from oh, some lineage related to this guy, Samuel? Yes, he's the founder of uh, the tradition we study. And I appreciate, I use his writings principally because of the, in comparison to other authors, his clarity and his depth. And we study in this tradition many authors, particularly uh, Gurdjieff, Steiner, Blavatsky, um, Dion Fortune, Max Heindel, many other uh, occultists, people who studied the hidden within the human being. But we use particularly Samael and Vior's writings for his uh, potency of his his knowledge that he expressed in different books, and which can provide clarity and insight into works of other occultists who came before him. So it helped his teachings I found have helped clarify the relationships between many principles and ideas which in occult circles may seem very divergent and separate, but he explained how they connect. So his particular gift was he explained the synthesis of religions and how to interpret these different uh, religious teachings and art specifically. He seemed like a Yes, and um, he really ex- he explains a lot in his books. You also mentioned Paul Tarsus. Yes, Paul Tarsus is a... The of the Western mind. No, uh, Paul, I'm referring to uh, specifically... Sure, thank, thank you. But uh, Paul Tarsus is referring to the Apostle, uh, who wrote uh, the Epistles, okay. part of the New Testament. Freemasonry was once a Gnostic uh, teaching. Uh, the rituals that were performed by the Freemasons um, are really Gnostic in origin. If you look at the symbol of the Masonry, you have the compass and the square, the letter G in the middle. G is Gnosis, knowledge. And so they said by working with your stone, Peter, chiseling that force inside, we can attain to union with God. So Freemasonry was once a Gnostic tradition before it became a social club, basically. Uh, you know, people who attend, they say they're masters of a 35th degree, but they just read books. They don't really practice the meaning of their tradition, which is really like with any religion nowadays. Uh, we find that, but Freemasonry is a, is a beautiful, very, it was a very active force in Europe, even in the Middle East as well. Um, for instance, uh, the meaning of the Stone of Kaaba in Islam retains to the cubic stone that we need to perfect, the stone of Peter, which in the Middle East is black, representing how our soul is, is impure. And we need to chisel it to make it pure. And we do that by performing seven circumambulations around the Kaaba during the, um, yeah, during the Hajj. And so the meaning of that is working with uh, the law of seven again, which even the Muslims, uh, in, you know, it's a very beautiful tradition that they have. Um, Again, like we said in the, about the, how seven is an organizing principle in all religions. Any other questions? You mentioned Judas, 
and then you also mentioned that he was lustful. Um, can you explain what lust is? Lust is um, a sexual desire that seeks to be satiated by sensation, specifically the orgasm. So the epitome of lust is to reach the sexual climax in which the energies of Peter, Patara, the stone, are expelled. And so lust pertains to, uh, if we examine our mind, it pertains to desire for sexual sensations. And the only way to really understand what lust is is to see it in action by learning to develop our uh, spiritual purity or chastity. Don't think that chastity, I, I don't, and by chastity we don't mean sexual abstinence, but purity. One can be engaged sexually with, as a husband and wife in a chaste way, in a pure way. Lust is, a, is the opposite of uh, sexual attraction. It takes the sexual attraction that one naturally has in one's magnetism as a couple and then abuses it for the experience of sensations for a, really no, no purpose but that. So we say that it's an animal tendency, lust. And the opposite is the virtues of God, which is uh, chastity. So virtue is the opposite, coming from the word virya, meaning warrior. To be a warrior is to conquer one's animal desires. You know, to have virtue, which is the same root word of virility. So the only the only way we can understand what lust is is to observe it. But how is that related to Judas? He he just sold out Jesus. So Judas. So Judas represent. So we have to understand that all the apostles came to represent something inside of us that we need to encounter. So just as we all have a Jesus, just as there was Jesus Christ physically, we also have our own internal Jesus Christ, who's our being. Likewise, we also have inside of us Pilate, the demon of uh, who basically crucifies the Christ, meaning we crucify our being, we wash our, and our mind, our ego washes its hands, I'm not guilty, I didn't do anything wrong. And then Caiaphas, there's an evil will, whenever we feel hatred towards another person, we're disobeying the commandment of God, love thy neighbor as thyself. So that's Caiaphas inside of us. And then Judas is a type of sexual desire. Meaning it, he sells the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Yes. So the energies of sex is Christ. And so Judas, the desire or passion, sells the Lord for an orgasm, basically. Meaning how our own ego sells our Lord, uh, makes our Lord suffer, hands over our inner being to our own defects because by selling the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. 30 represents the power of creation, and silver is the moon. So again, in relation to our body, the moon relates to lunar forces relating to sex because the powers of sex is, is a, relates to, we call it Yesod and Kabbalah, relates to procreation and lunar habits, which are not Christic, which are not solar, the opposite. We need to make the moon into a sun. But Judas, he sells, he gives away his being, meaning a person who is a Judas, somebody who orgasms, who wastes that energy in order to have 30 pieces of silver for a moment of pleasure that is ephemeral. It, it's, it's gone. But then that energy which could create the soul inside is lost. So that's the meaning of Judas. He's a, he represented in all of us our own uh, desire, which betrays God, particularly within uh, the sexual act. What about the dangers of repression? Like it's the middle path. So again, like Buddha taught, repression is, you know, you have to, to observe is to know God and to, um, it's to, uh, 
we have to learn how to see ourselves without pushing away our, you know, seeing that what we don't like inside of ourselves and saying, oh, I don't want to look at that, and then hiding from ourselves. That doesn't produce any comprehension. In fact, we, what that develops is a lot of frustration and mental tension, which eventually resurfaces as a, as a storm, basically. Neither do you want to feed that desire. To learn the middle way is precisely the entire path of self-realization, to balance those forces within oneself. And like that image I showed of Botticelli of uh, the crucifixion of uh, the death of Christ, everyone is disbalanced and is trying to equilibrate. And then you have Peter, he's, he's level upright. He says, I know that my Lord will resurrect in me if I am balanced. So he had the key. The way that we balance ourselves is by working with those two keys that he has in his hand, the gold key and the, the silver key. Masculine force, feminine force, a matrimony. So that's the ultimate meaning of a... But individual practitioners can work with those two forces in a minor degree in order to balance the mind. So we learn how to overcome repression and suppression as well as justification simply by doing it, by, obser- by balancing our psyche little by little. It doesn't come immediately, but through a lifetime or even lifetimes of work. But we get that balance gradually. Any other questions? I got one more. Uh, why were the days of the week changed? Because of people who don't know astrology. Wait, what were the days of the you week? mean in English? You well, mean in English? No, I mean uh, it goes from Monday to Wednesday. The original. There, there was an original astrological calendar, uh, which was adulterated by the Catholic Church. People who didn't understand the esoteric nature of how the days of the week relate to the seven planets, the law of seven of alchemy. Um, you find we have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but now uh, really the, the original calendar is Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. So Saturday is the only day that's actually in its right place, the Sabbath. So the, planet, the days relate to the planets. Monday relates to uh, the moon, lunes in Spanish, lunes, luna, the moon. Uh, Wednesday is Mercury, Miércoles in Spanish. Sometimes the Spanish words have more deeper connection to that. Um, uh, Venus, you have Viernes or Venus, uh, Friday, the son, uh, goddess of love. You have uh, um, Jueves, yeah, thank you. Jueves, uh, uh, Wednesday, the sun. And then you have Tuesday, uh, Martes or Mars. Uh, Jupiter is uh, Thursday, and then Saturn is Saturday. So the planets, they were changed because their people didn't, the Catholic Church, the people in the church didn't know what they were doing. And they wanted to make Sunday the last day of the week instead of the middle of the week because they believed that, well, uh, after the seven days, of, after the six days of, in the Garden of Eden, God rested on the seventh day and they wanted the seventh day to be Sunday for their own political purposes and misconceptions. Do we get any benefit by going to the old setup? Yes, so long as you don't get confused when you wake up for work. <laughs> where do you encounter this other order? Uh, we have a book, uh, in a book, uh, Practical Astrology, you find in this book. I explain, it explains uh, the calendar, basically. And then in what tradition? In ancient, what culture? And the, ancient, the ancient culture, all the ancient cultures knew these seven days in the depth, but it was only recently, I would say in the next uh, couple, last couple thousand years or so. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that we did yeah, because, because even in India, the, 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 the day names are the same planets, but it's the, still the same order as what we have, right? 
Sure. Thank you very much. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace. Thank you.